Colossians chapter 3 this morning. Colossians chapter 3. <clears throat> and we're continuing uh, with our series, Rooted in Christ. And uh, we've coming now to our text of Scripture this morning. And we're going to read this together and then make a moment of introduction and then get into the passage. Um, it's It seems like we've been going through Colossians for a good long time now, and yet it seems like it's gone by so fast. Uh, as we're coming up now, today we'll be into chapter 4, and uh, starting to see the landing strip in front of us, and finishing the book of Colossians, and thoroughly have enjoyed this. It's been a blessing to my soul to walk through this with you. If you found your place there, we're going to begin reading in verse 18, we're going to read down through verse number uh, 1, and I'm sorry, verse chapter 4, verse 1, and we'll read that together. And uh, let's read it uh, together. You follow along with me as I read aloud, and then we'll get into our text this morning. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we ask you to add your blessing to the reading of the word of God. We ask you, Father, that you would give us uh, what we stand in need of as we walk into this admonition this morning. Do a work in our midst that only you can do. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask all these things. Amen. So as we continue with our series this morning, one of the things that is so helpful for a church to walk through a book of the Bible from beginning to end and to teach each passage of Scripture is that it will not allow us just to jump over something that might be a little sticky. And it doesn't allow us to just bypass something that maybe we wouldn't prefer to address. As a matter of fact, I asked Pastor Caleb to preach this and he wouldn't do it. So I'm teasing. I'm joking. I didn't. Um, and, uh, but we can stand firmly behind the Word of God. And when we find something in Scripture that maybe doesn't jive with us, or doesn't jive with culture, or doesn't seem to fit even the historical narratives we understand, it's important to ask to say, what is Scripture saying to us? And that's why we do the way we do of walking through these texts, and we do so methodically. Um, and so this morning, I want to start with just this admonition. I do not ever want to come to this pulpit and assume that everyone here under the sound of my voice has accepted Christ as their Savior or has been changed. Uh, by the gospel working in your life. This morning, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I would plead with you, today is the day of salvation. And settle in your heart that you know that your faith rests in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we come to Him by faith in His finished work. And He does the work of regeneration within us. And it is a miracle. It baffles the mind how God can take someone from darkness and bring them into light. But only the Holy Spirit of God can do that within the heart of an individual. 
But let me say this morning, the message that I give today, and really the one that we've been walking through the entire chapter 3, is an impossibility for it to be completed apart from the work of Christ in the life of a person. To put to death what is sensual in you is not within the power of an unregenerate person to do. To put on these fruits of the Spirit is not within the power of a person who does not know Christ to do. It is not something you can be called to do. Not because the unsaved person could show no kindness or has no comprehension of mercy, but because they cannot do these things in the name of Jesus and for His glory. And they will not do these things empowered by the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God does not dwell in them. And this morning, if you do not know Christ as your Savior, even if you could imitate the call to action that we give this morning, and I doubt you could with much joy, that you would only make yourself a self-righteous sinner still under the judgment of a holy God. And I would challenge you this morning, believers, that we do not walk into these admonitions lightly, but we do so with the weight of understanding that it is not us that performs this, but it is the Spirit of God that does this through us. And so as we move into this, entitling the message this morning, uh, where it matters. This is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. We've gone from general application now to specific application. If we were in Georgia, we would say the pastor stopped preaching and he's gone to meddling now. And he's just messing in what you're doing. He's got his nose where it doesn't belong. Uh, but the reality of the text of Scripture lays it very plainly for us. And so it's incumbent upon us to look at the text of Scripture and say, what is God teaching us? So as we move this, we have a call in light of all that we have learned to take the next step and apply these realities to the most intimate and practical relationships of our world. The biblical roles are often under fire and not without some warrant. Many have brought a reproach upon the role that God has called them to live out and thus brought Christianity and the whole system that God has put into place under the same scrutiny and criticism. But let me remind you this morning that just because God sets up an order and men abuse that order, it doesn't make God's order bad. God's order is still valid and it is what we are called to. And the reality is every person this morning, whatever one we unpack this morning, we are all aspiring to fulfill our roles, not doing it perfectly. We are all struggling and walking in the spirit to see these roles fulfilled in our lives. So Paul is not calling them, by the way, to traditional roles. From our perspective, often we look at these roles, children obey your parents, wives submit to husbands, husbands love your wives, and we say, okay, well, you're talking about traditional values. No, we're not talking about traditional values. We're talking about biblical roles and biblical values. And when Paul is addressing them to the church at Colossae, these are anything but traditional at that time. These are earth-shattering to say to a servant that they are to serve their master as unto the Lord or to say to a master that you're to treat your servants with equity and to walk in that way or to say to a husband that you're to love your wife and not be harsh with her. That would have been totally contrary. And even to look at a woman and say, hey, submit to your husband would have been a foreign concept because too often wives were not seen as equals with their husbands in any way. So what would there be to submit? It would have been simply continue to obey. 
These were earth-shattering things that come to them. Now, we fast forward 2,000 years, and America and the Western culture has heard these principles preached, and if I can say they've taken them beyond the border of what God intended them to be, and twisted them and abused them in some cases, and now we almost say, well, that's just traditional roles. I'm going to tune you, off, tune you out. Let me say something. Something is not bad because it's traditional, and it's not right because it's traditional. And so we have to look to the scripture and ask, what does the scripture say? Now, let's not assume that everybody that's come before us was some kind of knucklehead that didn't know how to read scripture either. And let's not have the hubris that thinks that we and our generation have reached the pinnacle of all intellectual understanding of what scripture is. That maybe we have something to learn as well. And as we walk through this, I hope to do so with humility this morning. But the tendency then is to address these practical roles in relationship apart from the life-giving relationship of the spirit and spirit fullness. You see, when you read this text, it matter in verse number 17, look what he says here. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, how many of you, your, script, your Bible has a break and maybe some kind of subtitle there over the next section? Anybody like that in your Bible? All right, some of you don't have Bibles, that's okay. There's one in the pew in front of you if you'd like one, all right? Uh, but there's a break in the paragraph here, but it's not a break in the thought process. And so don't separate this spirit-filled life that he's describing from these applications that he's now ascribing to the different roles. To take these commands and attempt to walk them out, believers, this morning, apart from the spirit-filled life, is to ask for frustration and to court defeat. We cannot truly fill our roles apart from the spirit-filled life. It is the spirit of God that works in you that accomplishes the work in you that it may work through you. And it is only through that that you can accomplish these things. We cannot regulate the applications, however, to some cultural application of the past. And there's many reasons for this, not the least of which is that he appeals to the Lord on seven occasions in this text, that we're doing these things as to the Lord, not to appease the culture of the time, but to please the Lord Christ. That's what we're called to them. These are showing then to a broken world the transformative power of the gospel all the way down to where we live on a daily basis. And as a child of God, you and I are resting in the sufficiency of Christ. That's chapter 1 and 2. That Christ is sufficient. We are putting to death daily what is earthly in us. That's chapter 3, first part. We are putting on the new garments of grace. Chapter 3, middle. We are settled in the peace of Christ. We are dependent upon the word of Christ. We are guided by the name of Christ. And we're bathing everything we do in thanksgiving unto his name. Now we move into the intimate relationships and how we should walk. And only then can we do so. Unless I spend all morning qualifying my sermon, we should probably get into the text, all right? And so here we are. Wives, submit to your husbands. I'm going to break the outline. Wives and husbands, children, parents, servants, masters. And you've got the outline if you picked it up at the door. If not, you'll know the way we're going at it. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Some would say that this is a qualifier to say that as is fitting in the Lord, that a wife is only to submit to her husband as it is fitting in the Lord. Now, I would agree with that statement, but that is not the focus of what is being said here, but rather it is not the limit of the submission that is in view, but rather the necessity of submission that is in view. 
That he is saying, this is fitting in the Lord that a wife would come and submit to her husband. Now notice again, the command is predicated by and limited to a relationship. Wives, submit to your husband. And often when we come to this text, I can hear the, uh, the objections, and I don't think the objections are necessarily without merit on a practical level. Like, do you know my husband? I've got to submit to that? And, and I, I challenge you to remember you picked him. So, um, so, wives to your husbands. Wives and husbands come to this relationship willingly and freely. A wife is committed to one husband, a husband to one wife. And so here's what I don't want you to hear said, and I think often gets, gets wrongly expanded from this. This says wives submit to husbands. It does not say women submit to men. That was very quiet. But that's not what the text says. The, wives says, the scripture says wives submit to your husbands. Submit yourself. This is not forced submission, but a willing submission. Submission cannot be forced. How could you support uh, force submission? It's not demanded submission. We don't see any place in scriptures where it says husbands demand that your wives submit. But wives submit. It's a willing laying down of, and we'll explain this in just a moment. But you cannot force submission. How are you going to make someone do something against their will and even if you can put your hands on someone, which is an abomination, and force them to do something, that's not submission. Uh, my son, uh, he's gotten some beef on him these days, and he likes to wrestle with me on occasion, right? And uh, he'll lock horns with me, and uh, the, the advantage I have right now is not strength, it's just 100 pounds. That's the advantage I have. Um, and so we, we'll scuffle around, and, and I wish he wasn't here, but I know the day's coming where he's going to take me, you know? And now he may be able to force me to the ground one day, but he hasn't made me submit to anything. You know the story I've told you before, the little, little guy in the front seat of the car. And how many of you remember standing up in the front seat of your parents' car? All right, yeah. The bench seats. Yeah, I, I was three years old, cracked a windshield with that head right there in the front seat of my dad's car. And some of you are like, and that explains a lot, right? So, but I, he hit the brakes and I cracked the windshield with my head. Uh, but I remember standing up in the front seat of the car as a kid and riding, and the, one, the story goes, little boy standing up in the front seat, and his dad said, son, sit down. And he said, no. And he said, I said, sit down. No. The dad reaches over and grabs his little feet and yanks them out from under him, and his little rear end plops down on the seat. The little boy crosses his arms, and he goes, I may be sitting down on the outside, but on the inside, I'm still standing up. Now, that's not the heart of submission. The heart of submission is a willing laying down. So submission is not mindless thoughtlessness, but rather it is thoughtful input that is subordinated to the support of the husband God gave you in order to honor Christ and demonstrate the gospel transformation to a broken world. This is what it's being called to. And, and it's not not having an opinion. As a matter of fact, can, can we think about this for a second? You're not really submitting if you don't have an opinion. It is only in the times that you disagree that there is ever a time to submit. I mean, if we both want to go to Olive Garden, nobody has to give in. Right? And nobody wants to go to Golden Corral anyway. So, right? So, but nobody wants to do that. But if we want, both want to go to the same restaurant, there's no giving in there. 
But when there is a conflict, one can lay down for the other. And it's not to say the opinion is not shared, that it's not communicated, it's not even argued for. But when the day comes to the end, there is a call made, and the call is, wives, respect your husband by submitting and laying it down and in trust. Now, that may seem harsh. Let's look at the husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Again, this is in a relationship, predicated on it and bound by it. It does not say men love women. That's very important, men. And this is so important that as we love our wives, that we understand the call of New Testament Christianity is to be a one-woman kind of man. And that doesn't just apply to pastors and deacons. It applies to every man who calls himself a believer. Men should not have their head on the swivel, checking it out either for mental fantasy or for a physical relationship that they would pursue. But they have eyes for one woman, and they pursue her for his whole of his life, and they pursue her passionately. That that would be the heart of every man here. And though we have failed, and though we have come short time and again, that we would mark a line in the sand today and say, no, husbands, love your wives. Proverbs says, Rejoice with the wife of your youth. It does not say rejoice with your youthful wife. Pursue her until God calls one of you home. Show faithfulness and fidelity in that relationship. And he says this, husbands love your wives. Now this is not some kind of uh, heiress love that would be just to satisfy the flesh. But it is a love that is an agape love. It is an unconditional, a sacrificial, a selfless love of laying down ourselves for our wives. Now I, I don't want to pass this up. I think inside this call to love our wives, men, is also a call to submit to our wives. You said, no, hold on a second, Pastor. I thought that was the job of the wives. I don't have to ever submit. No, if we would love our wives, we would lay down what is not important to us. We are called to submit at times. As a matter of fact, Ephesians predicates the whole argument on mutual submission, but it does not take away the roles of the husband and wife in the relationship, but we should willingly lay down our preferences for the sake of our wife, but we may not abdicate the responsibility to lead when leading is necessary. There has to be a willingness to stand up and say, yes, I'll get, I don't care if we go to Olive Garden or not. What difference does that make? I don't care what color the paint is on the wall. Be honest, men. If your wife painted the house today, you wouldn't notice tomorrow. So the fact is we don't care about those things, but we can oftentimes, it's, it's about position and power, and, and that is not the call of loving our wives. Our, our call is to lay down our life. And as a matter of fact, Ephesians goes so far as saying to go all the way to the cross as Christ gave his life for the church, we're to love our wives in the same way. And some would say to me, and I've heard it said, well, how long do I have to take this until they nail you to a cross? A willingness to go to the cross for the one that we've committed to and laid down our life. This is the picture we're called to observe. Now we can't relegate these things to some cultural fitting because when we go to Ephesians, he says the wife is to submit to the husband as, Christ, as the church submits to Christ and the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. 
And so we can't wash these away by just saying they are some relics of a past time, but they are present imperatives upon the individuals that find themselves in the relationship of husband and wife. Now the King James reading here in this text, it says, and be not bitter against them. I admittedly had this passage all backwards. I used to wonder, why is he saying don't be bitter against them? Is he saying don't hold bitterness in your heart towards your wife? And, and I would say, yes, don't hold bitterness in your heart to your wife. But that is not what is in view here. And I love the translation we have before us this morning in the ESV when he says, and be not harsh with them. Be not harsh with them. You see, men, you are given strength to lead. You are given power to do certain things. And too often we can come off very heavy-handed and very harsh with our language. And men, we can see things in black and white and we think this is the way it's supposed to be. And instead of walking with gentleness, we come off very harsh. And we wound the heart of our wife when we do so. Gentle, this must come from the Spirit-filled life. Gentleness is not something that comes naturally to us. God has given you strength, and by the way, that strength, we're all too well reminded that is temporary and is waning the older we get. But that strength was never given you for the mastery of others, but for the service of those around you. How can I lay down my wife, my life for my wife today? How can I sacrifice myself? You see, this love, this unconditional, selfless, sacrificial love, what does it look like? It looks like the husband lovingly leading, providing, and protecting as a statement that the work of the gospel is having true effect in this broken world. And in some ways, the whole of marriage and in its proper balance is pushing back the effect of the curse in the world and we become a light to the world and we're like, what? You actually like your wife? You actually enjoy the company of your husband? And you say, Pastor, that's kind of strange, but you know the conversations at the water, the, the water cooler at work. You know the conversations around the coffee pot. And the reality is it's not universal in our world today, but there is angst in the hearts of people in our world today. And we have an opportunity, men, to lay down our life and love our wives and with our words set them apart above every other woman in this world because they are the one God gave us. Now, again, you may say, well, you just don't know my wife. And I would say, you picked her. So then, with a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek here, how do we handle this? This is always the question. I, I never can go to this text in any context without somebody saying, well, what are the exceptions? When do I not have to submit? When do I not have to love and lead and all of these things? Let me say this, men. I think we're to love regardless of what they do. But I think there are boundaries on submission, and if you look for those, I think you find them in the admonitions at the beginning of this chapter that we're to lay aside what is earthly, what is sensual. There's no, no, nobody is saying that you ought to be commanded to obey something that is vulgar or wrong, but you submit to the Lord above your husband. So then husbands say, well, what if my wife will not submit? Well, here's my sarcasm, okay? Make sure everybody knows how bossy she is. Tell everybody about it, all right? As a matter of fact, if you can make a Facebook post, that'll even be better, right? Complain about her to friends and family, especially to your parents. That will help a lot. Point it out to her as much as possible. Continue all of this berating of her as long as necessary until she finally submits. 
Now, how many of you think that's stupid? You, you with me? Yeah, okay. But here's the, here's the mistake I think that men often make on the other side. What you're going to do is just say, you know, I'm not going to do any of that, Pastor. I'm just going to withdraw and abdicate my responsibility to ever lead. And I'll never stand up and chart a course for my family. And that is just as wrong. You have a responsibility to leave. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Provide, protect, set her apart. You see, this is the ministry we are all called to. Men and women, this is our ministry we're called to. And I, I think of the line from Mission Impossible. This is your mission if you choose to accept it. Here's the mission. Look at verse number 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. What are we putting on? Compassionate hearts in your marriage. Kindness in your marriage. Humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. If any has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love. This is the call. This is the mission. And by the way, if we are walking in this mission of chapter verses 12 through 17, verses 18 through 4-1, or a cakewalk. Because when we are submitted, this flows naturally out of us. Wives, what if my husband won't love me? This is sarcasm again. Complain a lot. The louder you complain, the more he will listen. Refuse to express any care or love for him at all. After all, you're not obligated to love anybody who doesn't love you back? The Bible doesn't say love your enemies. Oh, I'm sorry, it does say that. Put him on the spot in public as much as you can. Gripe about him to anybody and especially to people who can't help the situation. Or you make the mistake also of withdrawing and refusing to give any input or any support that could protect or encourage or guide his steps. And see, we have the tendency of either going to one extreme or the other. And can we be honest? We all tend to drift on that extreme from time to time. We seldom ever strike the perfect balance for more than a few minutes at a time. And yet as we walk through this, we do so empowered by the Spirit of God to encourage and strengthen and to be a light in a lost world. So a wife can honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help bring his vision to a reality with the full strength of her gifts. That a husband can love his wife by laying himself down. These are both divine callings, not human aspirations. I'm full aware that at least part of this is abhorrent to our society. And really, the whole of this command is in its fullness abhorrent to our society. And maybe even some of you here today, it bothers you. However, this is the clear teaching of the text. We cannot cast aside these divine callings any more than we can say children need not obey their parents. We are called to uh, mutual servanthood. But let me remind you that servanthood does not obliterate the roles that we're given. It defines the roles we are given. That we are called to serve one another. So now we go to children and parents. Children obey. How much are they to obey? In everything. In everything. Obedience is the call of children, and really it's the only command that a young child is given in all of Scripture, is to obey their parents. And they're to do so because this pleases the Lord. And let me just say, moms and dads, do not set your children up for failure by telling them they should obey you because it makes you happy. 
When you teach your children to do what they do because it makes you happy, they are working for approval, not from approval. You tell your children, this is pleasing to the Lord when we do so. You are not doing this to get something. You're doing this because of who God is, not because who I am. I will fail you. I will come up short. But the Lord Jesus Christ will never fail you. He will never let you down. The motive is to please the Lord. This is transformative. A young child to obey, uh, young children obey often out of fear of correction. But the older a child gets, they should obey out of a love for their parents and ultimately pointing them to a love for Christ. Children obey. This is the only word for children in this passage. Obey means to come under the hearing of another and thus submit yourself to this instruction. God has told the child to obey the parents and to do so in the Lord. This is a Christ-centered idea. We do this unto the Lord. Children would refer to anyone who is young enough to understand and carry out this command. And we can only demand obedience to the degree that they understand and have the ability to carry it out. Nobody's going to look at an infant and say, hey, I told you to clean your room. It's silly. But we would look at a 9 or a 10-year-old and say, you were told to clean your room. And now we hold them accountable and we expect obedience. And let me make something very clear, moms and dads. We live in a culture today that does not believe children should obey their parents. It believes that parents should obey their children. We have reversed this and flipped it on its head. Moms and dads, and, and let me just stop and challenge you just for just a moment here. It is not always wise to ask them what they want to do when it is something they need to do. We don't ask our children if they want to go to school. We don't ask them if they want to eat their vegetables. Well, maybe we do. We shouldn't. I, I, I grew up, if mama put it on the table, you ate it, period, all right? Um, there's something respectful about that, by the way. That's cultural, not biblical. You can find another text somewhere, I'm sure, but side point. There's a respectful part of that that comes in. Children obey their parents. And, and here's the thing. I think most parents, here's where they get to the place where they're, they're going to give their children the greatest freedom to decide, and that's with the church. Well, I just don't know if they'll get anything out of it if they, if they don't want to come. Hogwash and nonsense. That's like saying they're not going to get anything out of going to school because they don't want to be there. I've never had a kid yet that wants to go to school on Monday morning, but they still need to go. And I believe bringing them to church and having them in the Lord, Lord's house, there is something greater going on here than the sum of the parts. And they need to be around the people of God, whether they like it or not. I challenge you. You call your children to a level of obedience, and especially your young children and your teenagers, as they get to that place and look, I love you with all my heart. You don't have to like it. And here's the thing about obedience. It's actually rather freeing because you don't have to have any original thought. You just have to do what you're told. It's not like submission where you actually have to come up with some kind of opposing view and argue the point. But it's just do what you're told. Because someone that God has put in your world has more information than you do and you need to obey. Fathers, do not provoke. Now, obviously, this can apply to mothers as well. Moms, don't provoke your children. But the application, the scripture doesn't address moms. And you say, well, why do you think that's the case? I think he's saying fathers don't provoke them or don't discourage them. The same reason he says, husbands, don't be harsh with your wives. 
is he understands, man, our tendencies is to come down very swiftly and very harsh. And it is not to say that there should not be firm hands in leadership of our children and correction, but it is to say that we should not provoke them to wrath by our handling of them. Always and forever it will be true that the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. It can't produce it in our children, and it can't produce it in us. And when we are responding in anger, <clears throat> we need to confess that as sin, not just to the Lord, but to our family as well. Of going to our family, going to our children and saying, hey, the way I handled this was wrong. And when I do that, I'm not, and here's a mistake I think we make. Dad's not really like that. Yes, you are. Yes, I am. I have a temper, I have pride that wells up inside of me, and anger, and the only hope that I have for dealing with that, and the only hope my children are going to have with dealing with the anger and the pride in their heart is pointing them to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I go to them and say, I've sinned against you, and I've sinned against God, and I've asked him to forgive me, and now I'm coming and asking you to forgive me as well. And by the way, this will never make you small in your children's eyes, but it will make Jesus very big. It will point him out as being who he is, the only one that can deal with our sinfulness. This verse is directed to fathers, and without question, mothers can be included. How do we provoke them? Comparison with others, unreal expectations, the nagging, the hypercritical, the double standards, never able to measure up. Let your children see that you're pleased with them. It's a wonderful thing. Dads, there is something, and, and dads, I think we struggle with this probably more than moms do, but it is a powerful thing for you to walk up to your son or your daughter and say, I'm pleased with you. I'm so proud of you. Even the heavenly father said to Jesus on two occasions, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He gives us an example. And to put an arm around and say, hey, what I saw in you today made this dad very proud. There's a powerful impact behind those words. And don't let the opposite be the case. Let the positive be the case. Bond servants and masters. God has called the family back to its created order in 18 through 21. Now he calls work and workers back to their created order, thus redeeming the worst of conditions from the fallenness of the world. Now many of Christianity's opponents will point, pointedly assert that the scripture does not condemn slavery, and therefore it is not morally trustworthy to listen to the Bible. This accusation is not completely without merit on a face value or a surface observation. However, an honest examination of the context would reveal precisely the opposite, that the message of the gospel and the trajectory of Scripture is going about to obliterate this scourge from the inside out. It was always the intention to bring liberty to the captives. Jesus proclaimed that in his first message. Now, the bondservant is not equal with our modern understanding of the word slave on its fullness, nor is, it, is this um, fully on par with the modern employer or employee either. It's somewhere in the middle of what we would call a slavery, but some bondservants would have willfully chosen to enter in this arrangement for its benefits. This was not a slavery based upon race, 
This was always handled, uh, but this was not, by the way, handled with equity and justice on either side. Paul gives us a quick look here, but a further understanding of how the gospel would treat this relationship is seen in the book of Philemon. As a matter of fact, in chapter 4 and verse number 9, we see a man named Onesimus mentioned in our text here. And Onesimus was a former slave of Philemon that was being sent back to him to make right what was made wrong. And he said, receive him no longer as a servant, but as a brother. And the admonition for change is going on here. It could be that one of Onesimus himself was carrying this book to the church at Colossae along with the letter to Philemon. What an incredible thought. So does the Bible condemn slavery? And I would argue that it does. And I I would challenge you, if you have questions about that, on the notes that I gave out this morning, a little QR code, you can scan it. And it will take you to a very challenging lecture on this very subject. It's about an hour and a half long, so I didn't play it for you this morning. Um, But take the time to listen through this. It will challenge your mind on it. But let me just give you these little cliff notes here. Man-stealing is forbidden in Exodus 21, 16. God judged the, uh, the, 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 the false or ethnic slavery harshly in Exodus. Slaves had the right of inheritance of sons in some cases. Much of slavery was over debt, economic engines, polygamous marriages, and war captives. And Scripture addresses all of these things and often is coming in of saying, here's the mess you're in, let's try to bring some order to it and a direction for it. And so as we come to the word bondservant, though I don't think it's a direct application, for us this morning, the application I want to make is our work and those that work for us are those that we work for. In everything. He gives us the scope of operating in everything. This is not without boundaries, of course, but inside the boundaries of right and wrong, it is said that we are to obey. Not to be seen of men, not, uh, but out of sincerity of heart, fearing God, fear the Lord, all of these things are to be in play. Again, the Lord is in front of us here and all of this. Five times in this admonition we see the word Lord. Fear the Lord, for the Lord, from the Lord, to the Lord. Verse 22, 23, 24, and 25. All of these are to the Lord that we do this. Christ is our Savior. He will deliver and He will judge. Now, as we look at these things When we get down to this, we see the mistreatment of these servants that could very well be. And James talks about this very bluntly of saying, hey, look, you promised to pay them and then you don't pay them. And they go home that night hungry when you said you would pay them. God will deal with you. And as we look at this text, here's what he says in verse number 25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. He said God is going to deal with them. Now, is that something when we have been mistreated that we should be like, all right, good, they're going to get theirs? That's not the call of the New Testament church at all. As a matter of fact, it ought to be, yes, that God will judge them, and so therefore I want the way I live to point them to the only hope they have of escaping that judgment. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. I want my testimony to be one that brings light to their situation, not find them under the final judgment, but understanding this, that judgment is coming. And so this is not just a a way for us to go, oh good, they're going to get theirs. But it is an admonition of how important it is that we walk in a gospel lifestyle because they will face judgment. And we have a responsibility to walk in this way. Christians should be this morning, and let me just say this, 
and just as a means of admonition to us all, it ought to be that the Christians in this room are the hardest workers that, that work at our job. That when we are there, we are pouring ourselves into it and that we're laboring hard. It should never be said of a believer that he is lazy or slothful. But that we are honoring Christ with the work of our hand because God has given us that work to do. It is not something that we do to be seen of men, but we do it because God is our Lord. Masters, you have a master in heaven. Treat them justly. Do right by them. Pay them what they are owed, fairly without prejudice. This is the call to those of us this morning who may lead a, a role in a company where you have the say of what someone is paid or how they are dealt with, that you have a call to deal with them justly and to operate without prejudice toward them, not just using people to your ends with false promises that never come to fruition, but if you promise something, you come through on it. And that you handle yourself in justice. Again, your position is never given you to tear down or to use, but always to build up and edify. Deal justly with them. Now, in conclusion this morning, when we find these relationships that are out of balance among believers, whether it be you're working for someone who's a believer or a believer is working for you or husbands and wives or wives and husbands, children, parents, parents to children, I think there is room when those things are out of balance according to the teaching and admonishing one another that we can go to one another and say, hey, look, this is not right. It's not lined up. And I want to call you to lining this up. But if we're going to admonish one another, we must do it in wisdom, with thanksgiving, with love that binds us all together, all of 12 through 13. This is what holds it together. And when we go, we must go with a heart of forgiveness, not a heart of accusation that we would go to admonish one another. And sometimes when these divides, even among Christians, are painful and deep, you may need to seek out a third party to help you work through this. And don't be afraid to do so. Address the pain that is there and walk forward for the glory of God. There is a great ministry ahead of us as a church. We need to be a light to a lost world. And I think the home and the work ethic and the child rearing of Christians can be an example to a lost world, a, a light to them that they don't see anywhere else, a hope that they have that we could give them if we would walk it out equitably and right. And so in conclusion this morning, I ask you to consider this, which one of these roles is a harder one to fill? And some of you might say, well, that depends on who you're married to. Um, the fact is, we could look at them all. Is it harder to submit? Is it harder to love? Is it harder to obey as a child? Is it harder not to provoke your kids? Is it harder not to obey your boss? Is it harder not to operate in fair play? Well, which one's harder for us to fulfill? And, and then I would ask you then, if you could answer this one, I think you would have the answer to that. Which one was harder? Was it harder for the lame man to rise, take up his bed and walk, or for Lazarus to come forth out of the tomb? Which one was harder? And the fact is, neither. Because the one who gave the command empowered the work. And so the work was empowered. And so we can't sit back and go, well, man, you know, my husband's got it easy because I'm a peach. You know, my wife's got it easy. I'm like the best husband I know. You know, my parents have got it easy. I'm a really good kid. You know, uh, we could go down this line. My boss has got it really easy because you know how good a person I am. No, the fact is we're all equally 
broken and failing at these things. And the only way these will be accomplished in our life is the same way it was accomplished in Lazarus when God says Lazarus, or Jesus said Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth. Because it is the Spirit of God that does the work in the heart of a believer who surrendered to him to do these things. Would you join me in prayer this morning as we conclude?